Good morning, church. How you doing? You good? Happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the house or moms watching online. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Mother's Day. Uh, my name is Keith. I do have the joy to be a pastor here, uh, as Bob mentioned, for quite a few years. And it's a joy to open God's Word with you this morning. It's not a specific Mother's Day message, um, so sorry about that. But uh, we are going through the Psalms. There are some portions of it, though, I think will speak to moms. And I hope that the message will be an encouragement and a blessing to everybody who's here this morning. Because we believe that all of God's Word is good all of the time. So we want to uh, dive into God's Word together this morning. So if you would, turn with me, if you're not already there, in your copy of God's Word, to Psalm Eight. It's Psalm 8. And let's read God's word together. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, as I mentioned, we are going through the Psalter, which is another name for the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. We're not doing every Psalm. That would take, obviously, at least 150 Sundays. Psalm 119 definitely would take more than one Sunday. So we are um, taking just a... a shortened view about 10 or 12 weeks and we're taking certain psalms there are different types of psalms so we're picking a few psalms from each of the sections uh, historically the book of psalms has been divided into five smaller sections or five smaller books so we're kind of working our way through those uh, books picking a few psalms from each book so today is our third week we're in uh, as you heard psalm 8 and the past few sundays Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they have um, been placed in the, the Psalter kind of as a, um, an introduction or a preface to what's happening and to what the reader can expect in the rest of the Psalter. So Psalm 1, as you'll remember, presents the idea of this ideal human, the one who puts his delight in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on God's law day and night. And he doesn't walk in the path of sinners or stand in, this, in, in the way of scoffers and so forth. So it's this ideal human, Psalm 1. Psalm 2, a little bit different, portrays the idea of humanity that has now embraced sort of wickedness and distorted justice and the nations are raging and trying to cast off their restraints. Psalm 8 is very different. Psalm 8 is the first true psalm of praise. Many of us think of psalms as being these psalms of praise, and certainly there are psalms of praise, and this is the first one that is a psalm of praise. Psalm 8 describes creation as it was meant to be, a display of the majesty of God's name imaged forth in the weakness of people for the flourishing of all creation to the praise of God. Let me 
read that again. Psalm 8 describes creation as it was meant to be, a display of the majesty of God's name imaged forth through the weakness of people for the flourishing of all creation to the praise of God. Well, here's the framework that I'm going to work with as we walk through this meditation of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a hymn of creation inviting us as the reader to magnify the majestic name of God to meditate on the wonder of God's creation and to marvel at the derived glory of God's image bearers. Let's look at the passage together. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you look at the end of Psalm 8, you'll see that exact same phrase being repeated in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. These are two bookends that kind of envelop the reader And make sure that we know at the outset and at the conclusion what the purpose of the psalm is. What is the main point? The main point is the majesty of God's name in all of the earth. So all that we talk about today better tie into the majesty of God's name in all the earth. Otherwise, we have gone far afield from the author's intent. First, I'd like us, church, to consider the idea of the name of God, specifically the majestic name of God, and how it is that we, as his people, might magnify the majesty of God's name. Well, my name is Keith, and it's not actually my favorite name in the world. I I know there's, whenever you go to, you know, Starbucks, and you're telling them your name, that's one of the names. It's probably not going to be spelled right, which I know that's probably a lot of people in here. They never get the E and the I. They always mistake the I and the E. If they're you know, a Hispanic friend, they'll never get the TH. They'll put an F, Keef. Uh, so it, it's never been like my favorite name, and I'm sure my folks, mom, if you're watching, happy Mother's Day, and it's great, I love you, but it's just never been my favorite name. I never really feel like a Keith, um, but you know, after 48 years, I'm kind of getting used to it. So I looked up what does the name Keith mean, and it means man from the forest. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just, maybe they thought their baby was going to be a man from the forest. I don't know. But that was my name. And uh, my wife is Kimmy. So we have Keith, we have Kimmy, and then we stuck with that. We have all the K's Kurt, Kevin, Cameron, Cassie. The poor dog also is a K name. So all the K's. And, um, you know, we, we did kind of look up the names for our kids when we were picking them. But it's really weird because you look at different places and they always tell you something different. Like, poor Cameron, her name means like crooked nose. I don't know why. She doesn't have a crooked nose, but it's like her name, if you look in certain places, it says crooked nose. I don't know. Sorry, Cameron. Your nose is lovely. Your nose is beautiful. Biblical names uh, are meant to be much more meaningful than maybe names that we take today. And Let's look at some of the biblical names that you might be familiar with. Abraham, father of a great multitude, right? Eve, Eve means mother of the living. Jesus means savior. Well, God has no shortage of names in the Bible, and each of these names for God are intended to give us an aspect of his character, an aspect of his divine nature. Well, let's think about the Psalter, the book of Psalms. Some of the names that God gives us in the book of Psalms that you've might have heard. El Olam means the everlasting God, Psalm 100, verse 5. Elohim, the strong one, the God of unlimited greatness and supremacy, Psalm 7, verse 10. Elyon, the most high God, Psalm 9, verse 2. 
Adonai, Lord, Master, Owner, the God of absolute authority, Psalm 2, verse 4. But none of God's names are more pronounced in the Bible than the name that God gave to Moses in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, you remember, God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush, and he's giving Moses a mission. God wants Moses to be his deliverer, to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But first, Moses has to go to the people of Israel and introduce himself as the deliverer to the people of Israel. And Moses is very concerned about this conversation. Specifically, he wants to know, what's the name of this God that has sent me? And he knows that the Israelites are going to ask, what is the name of the God that has sent you? So God responds to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and it'll be on the screen. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In Exodus 3, God gives his personal name, the name Yahweh. And one way to translate the name Yahweh is I am. And so God says to Moses, tell them, I am sent me to you. The name Yahweh is used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament as a name of God. And Moses was not just asking God what is his name, but he was asking about God's character and God's nature. Yahweh is the self-existent, the eternal God. Yahweh is a personal and relational God. Yahweh is a redeeming God, leading his children out of bondage, Egypt, Egypt's bondage and the bondage of sin. Yahweh is a very specific and very personal name for God, the God of Israel. And it is usually translated in our Old Testament as all caps L-O-R-D. So that is Yahweh. If you see it, all caps G-O-D, Old Testament, is probably also Yahweh. But when you see God described with L, lowercase o-r-d, in lowercase letters, the word is not Yahweh, the, the word there is Adonai. Here's how it's used in Psalm 8. They're both used in the first verse of Psalm 8. O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You might know this uh, being in South Florida. If you know some Jewish friends, uh, if they're practicing Jews, they probably don't say the name Yahweh out loud out of reverence. They will say Adonai instead. And there's a particular meaning to Adonai, and it refers to God's absolute sovereignty over creation. Well, certainly here in Psalm 8, the psalmist David has in view the creation account in Genesis 1. And so as readers uh, and studiers of God's word, we should also have Genesis 1, the creation account, in mind as we walk through this psalm. The name Adonai, it's majestic in all of the earth. This absolute sovereign God is sovereign over creation, and he's put his name on display specifically in creation so that the purpose for everything on earth, including you and me, 
is to point people to our creator, God, and to put on display his majesty and specifically the majesty of his name. Friends, let's remember that God did not have to give his name to Moses, but he chose to reveal his name and he chose to reveal his character to us. This God wants to be known and he wants to be known in his majesty. This is how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Where God chooses to place his name, he also places his presence Think about it. The garden where God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. The tabernacle where his glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And of course, in his people, in the new covenant people, God has placed his spirit in us to indwell us. The name of God and the presence of God lay claim of divine authority and ownership wherever they are found. Notice in the text these two parallel lines. How majestic is your name in all the earth, and you have set your glory above the heavens. Notice how in all the earth and above the heavens, they function as what's called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, where earth and heaven mark out the extremes of all that God has created. From heaven to earth is to be permeated with the majesty of God's name. Well, we've talked about already the way that we as his creatures might magnify the majestic name of God. We've talked about what is God's name. In this passage, it is Yahweh, the God who is. His name is Adonai, the God sovereign over creation. And what do those names tell us about who God is? They tell us that he's majestic. His power is on display. That he is self-existent. He is eternal. He is personal. He is relational. He is redemptive. He is the God who says, I am delivering you from bondage. Secondly, I want us to think about what it means to meditate on the wonder of God's creation. And as we do, consider these two questions. First, what did God create? And second, what does this tell us about who we are? Look at the text, verse 2, Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. I'm not sure if you're familiar with catechisms. They've kind of come back in favor. A catechism is basically a series of questions and answers that are intended to teach biblical truth. There's a recent one called the New City Catechism, and I commend it to you. And the New City Catechism asks this in question four, how and why did God create us? And the answer is, God created us, male and female, in his own image, to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live for his glory. And then in question five, what else did God create? God created all things by his powerful word, and all of his creation was very good. Everything flourished under his loving rule. Well, the psalmist says that out of the mouth of babes and infants that God has created, he has established strength because of your foes to still the enemy 
and the Avengers. Well, when I think about what comes out of the mouths of babies and infants, I don't think about strength. I think about drool. I think about projectile vomit. I think about silliness, babbling, silliness. I don't think of strength. What, what, is, what is David up to here? What is the psalmist trying to give us an image of? Well, we have to remember the psalms are poetry. So we don't take things literal in the psalms. They're trying to give us a poetic image. And the poetic image here is the idea of contrast. Contrasting the strength and the majesty of this God that's created everything. And now, the weakest of all of humanity babies who are completely dependent upon others for their very survival. This is amazing. The God of creation is so powerful and so majestic that even his smallest and weakest creation are like giants to those who would oppose Yahweh. The enemies of Yahweh don't stand a chance against those in God's nursery. What an incredible thought. That God builds strong defenses out of human vulnerability and weakness. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Indeed, this is the starting point of receiving God's strength, is recognizing our own weakness. Well, certainly as we're talking here in Psalm 8 about Babies and nursing infants. We want to stop and uh, think about mothers and think about this first relationship that all of us share. In God's, it's God's good design that all of us begin life inside our mother's womb. And that is our first relationship. It's with our mothers. And we can all be thankful for the mothers who carried us and who chose to give birth to us. And we're also reminded of how God chose to use in his plan of redemption that Jesus began his earthly life inside Mary's womb. Jesus, as you know, had no biological earthly father, but he did have a mother. And as we meditate on the wonder of God's creation, let's give honor to the women, to the mothers that God used to bring us into this world. So thank you, moms, for all you do to love and to nurture and to serve us in so many ways. Let's look at the text again. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. What a strange picture this is. The most dependent, the most weak and vulnerable humans, infants and babies. God has established or ordained strength. And some translations say ordained praise to come where? From their mouths. In such a way that God's foes are defeated. What could David possibly mean here? First, I think in God's economy, God wins through weakness. But more specifically, I think victory comes through the mouths of children in at least two ways. First, think about the promise of Genesis 3, 15. Man, uh, Adam and Eve, has just sinned, and they've uh, eaten the fruit that God told them not to eat, and they fall into sin, and God comes to Adam and Eve, and he speaks to the serpent, and he says this to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
So here in Genesis 3.15, we have the first tiny glimpse of God's plan for salvation, a tiny, tiny glimpse of the gospel. And how was that gospel to come? That gospel was to come through the seed of the woman. That gospel would first appear through the cry out of the mouth of a baby, specifically the baby born of Mary, the baby of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the spreading of the image of God throughout all of the earth with every human baby that is born as an image of God, the first cry of that baby is a cry of victory against God's enemies. In verse 3, the psalmist continues to meditate on God's creation as he lifts up his eyes from the nursery now to the night sky, and he says in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, Church, let's meditate together on the wonder of God's creation. Take a look at this. Winter of 1995, scientists pointed the Hubble telescope at an area of the sky near the Big Dipper, a spot that was dark and out of the way of light pollution from surrounding stars. The location was apparently empty, and the whole endeavor was risky. What, if anything, was going to show up? Over 10 consecutive days, the telescope took close to 150 hours of exposure of that same area. And what came back was nothing short of spectacular. An image of over 1,500 distinct galaxies glimmering in a tiny sliver of the universe. Now, let's take a step back to understand the scale of this image. If you were to take a ballpoint pen and hold it at arm's length in front of the night sky, focusing on its very tip. That is what the Hubble telescope captured in its first deep field image. In other words, those 3,000 galaxies were seen in just a tiny speck of the universe, approximately one two millionth of the night sky. To put all this in perspective, the average human measures about 1.7 meters. With Earth's diameter at 12,700 kilometers, that's nearly 7.5 million humans lined up head to toe. The Apollo 8 astronauts flew a distance of 380,000 kilometers to the moon. And our relatively small sun has a diameter of about 1.4 million kilometers, or 110 times the Earth's diameter. A step further, the Milky Way holds somewhere between 100 to 400 billion stars including our sun, and each glowing dot of a galaxy captured in the deep field image contains billions of stars at the very least. Almost a decade after taking the deep field image, scientists adjusted the optics on the Hubble telescope and took another long exposure over a period of about four months. This time, they observed 10,000 galaxies. Half of these galaxies have since been analyzed more clearly in what's known as the Extreme Deep Field Image, or XDF. By combining over 10 years of photographs, the XDF shows galaxies so distant that they're only one ten billionth the brightness that the human eye can perceive. The deep field images have also shown that the universe is homogeneous. That is, images taken at different spots in the sky look similar. That's incredible when we think about how vast the universe is. Why would we expect it to be the same across such huge distances? On the scale of a galaxy, let alone the universe, we're smaller than we can readily comprehend. 
but we do have the capacity to wonder, to question, to explore, to investigate, and to imagine. So the next time you stand gazing up at the night sky, take a moment to think about the enormity of what is beyond your vision, out in the dark spaces between the stars. Isn't that amazing? This universe with unseen galaxies, it's the work of God's fingers. The psalmist is using this idea of God as a sculptor and and God is sculpting and placing every star and every galaxy exactly where he wants it to go. And we need to join the psalmist in wonder at the cosmic chorus that's being sung every night across the universe to its creator God. Billions of galaxies, unseen by human eyes, containing billions of stars and planets, exist for the purpose of praising God and calling us to do the same. Brothers and sisters, we need to take time to turn off the light pollution of our phones, computers, and TV screens that are distracting us from looking up into this great, unfathomable universe and to worship our God. So often, our minds and our eyes want to be entertained by things that make us big and God small. But the psalmist invites us to remedy that perspective by looking up. And when we do, we will ask with the psalmist, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Third, this morning, I'd like us to marvel together at the glory of God's image bearers of us. It's a derived glory. And I'd like us to ask two questions about this derived glory that we bear as God's image bearers. First, what kind of glory belongs to man? And second, in what ways do we bear God's image? Look at verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that you care for him, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Recall that Psalm 8 paints a picture of God's creation as it was intended to be. And in a very real sense, we could take Psalm 8 and we could place it in a pre-fall Garden of Eden. God speaks the universe into existence and then he fills the earth with life. He creates mankind in his own image. And God then gives this command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth and it was very good. Notice the similarities between Psalm 8 and Genesis 1. God is the uncreated creator, making order out of chaos, setting the heavens in place, filling the heavens with stars and moons and planets. Both Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 clearly communicate the astounding truth that among God's expansive cosmos, there is one crowning jewel. You and me. How do we know that humans are the crowning jewel of God's creation? Because only humans bear the image of God. Look at verse 26 of Genesis 1. God says, Let us, that is the Godhead, make man in our own image, 
After our likeness, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. After considering the extreme contrast between the majesty of Yahweh and the frailty of humans, the psalmist's concluding thought is to marvel the truth that Yahweh is mindful of us and caring towards us. Think for a moment of another biblical character centuries before David who looked up at the night sky to be encouraged and to remind himself of God's promise. God told Abram in Genesis 15, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. Church, let us join Abraham and David as we look up at the night sky and remember the greatness of our God who created this vast universe and remember that he cares infinitely for us. Verse 5 of Psalm 8. Yet you have made him, that is mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and with honor. Well, what kind of glory is David talking about? What kind of glory belongs to men? As we continue to compare Psalm 8 with Genesis 1, thinking about specifically how God created humans, Genesis 1 tells us that God created mankind on the sixth day, But that's not all he created on the sixth day. He also created other land animals on the sixth day. But only mankind was given God's image. So mankind has one foot firmly on earth, but one foot quite a bit higher created in God's image. And Genesis 1 again tells us that all the creatures were, all the land creatures were created to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's not just specifically for humans. All the animals were told to be fruitful and multiply, but only mankind was given dominion throughout the earth. Psalm 8 tells us that although humans seem insignificant in contrast with the vast universe, we were made a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, and we were crowned by God with glory and honor. You begin to see what the psalmist is driving at, that we do as humans bear a glory, but it is a glory that has been given to us. We have a derived glory. This glory comes as a gift from God. Our worth is based on the fact that we bear the image of God. Every person has immeasurable value because every person is created in the image of God. Well, let's talk about the image of God a little bit and ask this. In what ways do we bear the image of God? Being created in the image of God means that we were meant to image God. If I wanted to make images of myself and make statues of myself, place them around different places and put my name on them, I would want people to come by and see that statue and remember my name, remember things about me. Another way to think about the image of God is simply to think of as a mirror, that we were created to be a mirror, kind of set at a 45-degree angle so that we are imaging forth God's greatness to the world and reflecting his greatness. So we are intended to live in a way and to think in a way and to feel in a way and to speak in a way that calls attention to the glory of God. And certainly in the fall of humanity, going back to Genesis 3 again, this image of God has been affected. It has been defaced, but it has not been destroyed. And it is so foundational for us to understand this. Every person is created in the image of God. 
every human life bears the imago Dei, or the sacred image of God, from the moment of fertilization to natural death. And consequently, every life is worth every protection available. Church, I want to speak for a few minutes about the battle to protect this imago Dei, the image of God. And I realize abortion is a difficult subject, and it's very likely touched many lives in this room today, directly or indirectly. And at the outset, I want us to hold firmly to this foundational biblical truth that if you are in Christ, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, Romans 5.2. You've probably heard the news of a leak from the U.S. Supreme Court this week regarding a decision that would potentially overturn Roe v. Wade, 1973, and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 1992. Since Roe in 1973, abortion was legalized throughout our country. And in those 50 years, nearly 64 million babies have been aborted in the United States. That's nearly 20% of the U.S. population. It's simply staggering and heartbreaking to consider the loss of life and the brokenness that have occurred in the wake of legalized abortion in our country. Abortion is at its root an attack on innocent lives created in God's image, and it's a violation of God's commandments. I want to encourage our church family to pray regarding this decision that's coming down from the court, that it will indeed overturn these previous decisions. If it is so, the battle is not over. In many ways, the battle will intensify. States around the U.S. will react with laws and court decisions. It also doesn't mean that this will end the debate at the federal level. However, it would be progress and has the potential of saving millions of precious lives that are created in God's image. We must renew our commitment to love all who are affected by abortion. And I'm aware that especially on Mother's Day, there are women here who have experienced abortion and may bear tremendous guilt and shame. And I want you to know that you can find forgiveness at the cross of Christ and that God loves you. As a church, we're blessed to partner with First Care. First Care ministers to women facing crisis pregnancies and encourages them to choose life for their unborn children while sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They offer post-abortion support as well. And I want to encourage us today, church, to support the life-saving work of First Care. On your way out, grab a baby bottle and give as the Lord leads you uh, in support of this frontline ministry. Let me also say, as a people who uphold the sanctity of life, we have a responsibility and a privilege to open our homes to children who are displaced from their birth parents. On any given day in Florida, there are 19,000 children in foster care. On any given day, there are about 600 of those children that are waiting for permanent placement without identified families. And if you would like more information about foster care or adoption, my wife and I are always available, and we would love to talk to you about foster care and adoption. I know there's other families in our church as well who would love to talk to you about the gospel work uh, of, of adoption and foster care. We, as a church, do partner with Four Kids of South Florida. They're a great Christ-centered organization that helps to bring hope and healing to children who are in need of placement. Four, care, I'm sorry, Four Kids also offers um, training and information for anybody who is interested in finding out more about becoming a foster parent. 
Church, let's pray about how we can support life and the image of God among women in crisis pregnancy, fathers who need to be discipled, and the unborn and the orphan. As we consider what such involvement might look like, let us consider the one who came not just as an, as an image of God, but as the Word made flesh, who came to minister in grace and in truth, John says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Our final consideration this morning in Psalm 8, it has to do with marveling at this derived glory of God's image bearers. And we've talked about what kind of glory belongs to man and in what ways we bear God's image. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 8. You have given him, that is mankind, dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. Again, we hear the echoes of Genesis 1 in Psalm 8. God has given this special decree to humans that he's given to no one else to have dominion over God's creation. And again, we see the psalmist emphasize that this human authority is given to us by God. And the clear implication is that we are given a stewardship and a responsibility to care for God's creation and to do so in a way that reflects the Creator's intent namely to spread his glory throughout the earth. So God has made humans, according to Psalm 8, a little lower than the heavenly beings. God gives humans dominion over all that God has made, and he's placed all things under the feet of humans, so that as image bearers of God, we might work to bring all creation under the rule and reign of God. This is known as the cultural mandate to bring all things, all creation, under the rule and the reign of God. And it is called this, the cultural mandate, because beginning with Adam and Eve, and then reaffirmed again with Noah, God gave all humanity, not just Christians, all humanity, a mandate to create God-honoring culture. And we can see that throughout human history, how this has played out. Cultures and nations generally speaking, that have pursued Judeo-Christian ethics and laws and morality and justice, they have experienced, again, generally speaking, they have experienced human flourishing. And the opposite is also observable. Nations and cultures that have abandoned God's laws have experienced the consequences of that. As Adam and Eve experienced, and Israel later would experience, life apart from God's rule and reign never works out as well as we think it will. So what does this cultural mandate mean for us? Well, think back again to Genesis 1. God blessed humanity in Adam and Eve. He commanded them to multiply and fill the earth. Well, fill the earth with what? Well, he commanded them to fill the earth with more people, obviously. But what are people? People are the images of God, the images of God's glory. So in this, we are filling the earth with the glory of God as we are filling the earth with people. Yeah. Moms and dads, get busy. Have more kids. That's part of the cultural mandate. It's a normative way to obey God's command. Thank you, Durr family. Good on you. <laughs> High five. At the same time, I do want to 
remember that there are those of us in this room who have, who have tried and who haven't been able to conceive naturally. And I want you to know that God has not forgotten you. I know that infertility can be very difficult and that God has other plans for you. He's not forsaken you. I encourage you to keep seeking him. And I know it can be hard, but I know that he will lead you. So the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, part of it is to fill the earth with more images of God. And that's a call for families, but there's more. There's an individual call here as well, and it's a call to create. We obviously can't create in the same way that God creates, but we're also the only creatures that God made that do reflect his creative nature. You don't see chimpanzees you know, building an Eiffel Tower or painting a Mona Lisa. That's strictly something that you see reflected in humanity. Well, we're not all artists. We're not all architects. Praise God for those who are. But I want you to consider today, how might you reflect the creation of God in your life? How has he gifted you? And how might those gifts be expressed in a God-honoring way? Maybe it's cooking a meal for your family. Maybe it's planting a garden. Maybe it's making music. Whatever it is, be creative and do it to the glory of God. Well, finally, the cultural mandate to fill the earth with the glory of God can only find its truest fulfillment in the Great Commission. Before Jesus ascended, at the end of his earthly ministry, he gave this commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So even as God commanded the first family, Adam and Eve, to multiply and fill the earth with the images of God, Jesus now elevates that command and sends his bride, the church, out into the world to multiply disciples to the end of the earth that the majestic name of God might be worshipped and magnified in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us renew our commitment to engage in the work of building our lives and our homes and our church to reflect the design of our Creator, to magnify the majestic name of God, to meditate on the wonder of God's creation, and to marvel at the derived glory of God's image bearers. Psalm 8 describes creation as it was meant to be, a display of the glory of God, imaged forth through the weakness of people, for the flourishing of all creation to the praise of God. Later, the Apostle Paul would understand that this praise culminates in the person of Jesus Christ when he says this to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Friends, if you're here this morning and you've not yet bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, I pray that you would do so today. Don't wait another day to join your voice to those that are already magnifying the majestic name of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for showing yourself to us. You didn't have to do that. We thank you for being a God who reveals yourself to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the history and the beauty of redemption displayed. Thank you for Jesus Christ and for redemption accomplished. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit for redemption applied. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a people to recognize the image of God in us and in each other, to protect this precious image of God that you've placed in us in every life, to live as a people who realize the mandate that's placed upon us to reflect your glory in everything we do, whether it's eating or drinking, singing, working, living together in community, everything we do to your glory. And especially as we think of the Great Commission that you have sent us to make disciples, to tell the good news that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Lord, would you do it today? Would you speak life to hearts? Would you repair broken hearts? Would you do the work that only you can do? For your glory and for the majesty of your great name, we pray.